From the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, this is Out of the Cold. I'm Deanna Boyd. So when I last left you, Fort Worth cold case detective Mike McCormack had just reopened the 1973 cold case murder of 14-year-old Donald Rogers after family members had called him, wondering why the 15-year-old suspect in the case was never prosecuted. Donald had been found dead, shot in the face and stabbed seven times inside the home of his best friend, Melvin Knox. Melvin had blamed Donald's killing on an intruder, but the crime scene appeared staged and Melvin would be arrested days after the shooting. The charges, however, were quietly dropped a few months later. When a case is closed, that means it's been solved. Isn't that right? So if it was solved, what was the outcome? There was no outcome, it was just closed. Needing to find new evidence to link Melvin to the crime, McCormack re-interviewed Melvin in 2015. But the then 57-year-old man continues to blame Donald's death on an intruder. At a standstill in the case, McCormick goes to visit Melvin's family on August 11, 2015. Uh, I knew I was at a roadblock. Nobody could provide additional information. So I thought I, I needed to go to the family, the Knox family, and see if anybody there would talk about what happened and had information that could help me tie Mr. Knox to the case. Now that seems like, you know, a tricky thing to do. You're going to his own family who are probably not going to be openly receptive to just, you know, handing stuff over to you that's going to implicate him. Did you go there kind of thinking this was a shot in the dark? Yes. Uh, I, I don't call beforehand uh, to get the more true answer uh, so people don't plan their stories. And I felt like it was a shot in the dark, but that also, again, what did you say 40 years ago? I know what you said 40 years ago, but you might provide more information that you didn't want to provide back then. That was my hope. So Ruth and Curtis still live on Fayette Court, inside the house in which Donald was murdered. Their daughter, Sheila, lives there too. When the detective arrives, Ruth is piddling around outside the home, which is showing its age. The detective introduces himself, asks if he can speak to her about the night of Donald's death, and she agrees and invites him inside. They sit at the dining room table. Again, McCormick explains who he is and tells her that he will be recording their interview. Ruth begins recalling for McCormick that 1973 night, the fear of initially believing that it was her own son that had been killed, and how, after it was determined it was Donald, a distraught Fern Rogers had come to the house crying and angry. She even tells the detective that she suspects Fern put a curse on her family that night, leading to the Knox's future misfortunes. Then she asks the detective a question he wasn't expecting. Did the detective want to hear about what happened after police left? And she said that everyone was puzzled what happened, but she doesn't think Melvin was puzzled. And then she told me that her brother, who was the uncle and Aunt Michelle, told them that he believed Melvin shot that boy. That's when I knew that that the family knew what happened, and the family had kept that a secret, and this is my chance to find out what really happened. So I asked her, what did Melvin say about your brother saying he believed Melvin shot that boy? And she then told me the story that Melvin had provided her, that Don Rogers went into the restroom, and Melvin went to check on him, he held a toy that belonged to Melvin's younger brother. Melvin told him to drop it, he didn't. So Melvin went and got a gun, a shotgun from the closet, and pointed it at Donald and told him to drop it. 
Donald didn't, so I shot him. And this is what Ruth Knox told me that Melvin told her a day or two after the offense. So McCormick asked Ruth why she didn't tell investigators this back then. And she gives them various reasons. She says officers had already left her home, that one of the officers that had been there was quote unquote mean. She says she also knew that what her son had done was an accident, but was fearful that police would believe it was intentional. So I started asking questions, you know, more, more, more details. What about, what do you say about stabbing the victim? She said he doesn't remember that. Who put the rock through the window? Who dumped the TV over? And she said Melvin did. And I said, why would he do that? And she, her response was, he probably watched too much television. He wanted to make it look like somebody broke in. Now, it's only when McCormack asks if he can take some pictures inside the Knox home that it seems to dawn on Ruth the significance of what she's just shared. She asks the detective again, why is he asking her about a case that's over 40 years old? She probably suspected the case was long over and done with. But murders carry no statute of limitations. When McCormack repeats that he's a cold case detective and that's his job, she tells him he can't take photos inside the house nor speak to her husband. They chat a little longer about unrelated things and he thanks her for her time and leaves. Now you have to know McCormack is silently rejoicing in his head right now. I mean, Ruth has just snitched out her own son and blown the case wide open. McCormick is excited, but not overconfident. He's played this game before, and he knows it doesn't mean a slam dunk. From, from, for me, I felt like that was what I needed. Again, that doesn't mean that it's even good enough for the court. I've been a detective for 16 to 17 years, and I've learned to tell people criminal justice system is not about common sense. You need to take common sense out of it. It's about what you can prove. And that's hard for people to understand, but that is the system. That Ruth would cover for her son all these years is mind-blowing. I mean, on one level, I have kids. I know that innate feeling of wanting to protect your children from harm. But a child is dead here. And there's a twisted irony in the story Cynthia told earlier about having to spend a night in juvie for shoplifting after Fern Rogers refused to pick her up as a way of teaching her a lesson. Here's Cynthia's take. How can you carry that evilness for 40 years and support it. It's the parent's responsibility to teach our child. And they, the lesson they taught him would follow him his entire life. Hopeful that Ruth's statement might be enough now to arrest Melvin, McCormack contacts the head of the juvenile division and tells him the latest update. But he's told other things must be done first. Because the murder occurred in 1973, Melvin would have to be prosecuted under the laws in place then, so research was needed. And the DA's office wants McCormack to get the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office to conduct a peer review on the original autopsy. Now the waiting can be frustrating, especially for a cold case detective. McCormack will tell you that he learned quickly in the cold case unit that you were at the bottom of the bottom of the list but he knows that the waiting is so much worse for a victim's family and calls Jeff Rogers regularly to keep him in the loop while being careful not to give him false hope. On December 2nd, 2015, McCormack decides he can wait no longer. He writes a murder warrant for Melvin, gets a judge to sign it, and hands it over to fugitive officers who will arrest Melvin at his Fort Worth apartment the very next day. Now in handcuffs, Melvin is again brought to the downtown station where he agrees to speak with McCormack again. McCormack is ready. On the table in the interview room sits the detective's recorder. He's got it cued to the snippet of his interview with Ruth, where she says that her son had confessed to shooting Donald. I played that for him, and I just said to him, 
Melvin, this isn't about if you did it, it's why you did it. Yes. And he asked, that's my mother? And I said, yeah, I said, keep listening. And at one point he said, I don't want to hear any more of that. Shoulders dropped a little bit, and was resigned to, yes, now it's finally out that, that I've committed this crime. So uh, I asked him just to tell me what happened. Uh, and he said that we're in the house, that Donald was in the restroom, and that they both had guns, that they both talked about playing with guns. And that Melvin admitted he went to the closet and got two shotguns and gave one to Donald, and he had one, and they both pointed the shotguns at each other. He said that Donald pulled his trigger, nothing happened, and then he pulled his trigger, had a, heard a boom, and he doesn't remember anything after that. But McCormack isn't buying this new Donald was also playing around with a gun claim. He thinks it's Melvin's way of minimizing what he did. So he takes a short break, consults with homicide detective Tom O'Brien, who's been watching the interview from outside, then re-enters and basically calls Melvin a liar. He then admitted that Donald never had a gun, but he'd lied so much that he might have convinced himself at one point that Donald had a gun. So now McCormick starts pressing Melvin on the questions that we all want to know. Why? Why did he point a shotgun at Donald's head that day? Why did he pull the trigger? Melvin tells the detective he frequently played around with the shotgun and had previously aimed it at others and pulled the trigger. But he insists until that day, the gun had always been unloaded and that he didn't know it was loaded that day. He must have really hated Donald, stabbed him seven times. He said he didn't hate Donald. Donald was his friend. Why would you stab him seven times? And he said that maybe he thought he was alive and he didn't want to tell on him. While Melvin claims the shooting was accidental, prosecutors say for Melvin to then stab Donald seven times was clearly intentional. A silencing, prosecutor Brooke Panathos calls it. The shotgun wound had gone through Donald's cheek and out the other. Do you think if he had, after the shooting, called for help? that it's possible that Donald would have survived? You know, the fact that the cranium was intact, the brain was unaffected, um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that he at least owed it to him to call for help. Um, there was a substantial amount of blood loss, you know, but I think that maybe there was a chance there. But rather than, you know, running for help, he ran off to save his own skin to his uncle's house. And so whether or not he could have been saved that day, we'll never really know because he didn't do the right thing. So Melvin's back behind bars, finally, for the murder of Donald Rogers. Now, the first thing prosecutors have to do is seek to certify him as an adult, which I know sounds funny, as he's now a 58-year-old man. But since he was 15 when Donald was killed, prosecutors have to treat him as if he's still a juvenile. And if they want to prosecute him in the case, they've got to convince a judge to certify him as an adult. Billy Mills, one of the prosecutors in the case in the 70s, told me in our recent interview that he would have never dismissed the charge against Melvin in 1974 had Ruth told police what she knew back then or had Melvin confess. But interestingly, he also told me that even if he'd had that information, he doesn't believe he'd have sought to certify Melvin as an adult back then. He said he believes the shooting was accidental and the subsequent stabbing the result of fear. That was panic. He panicked. I would too. That, but I can see a person panicking under those circumstances. So at the certification hearing on August 2nd, 2016, Judge Tim Menikos hears testimony from Mills, the two former Fort Worth officers who had gone to the Knox home on the night of Donald's death, and from McCormack, who tells the judge about Ruth's disclosure and Melvin's confession. 
Melvin's defense attorney, Ray Hall, is trying to convince the judge that Melvin shouldn't be certified as an adult because of what he calls a lack of due diligence by authorities back in the 70s. He said there's no evidence that investigators tried to do anything to move the case forward before Melvin turned 18. Um, I think they could have tried the case back then. I think they had evidence that they possibly could have, you know, found him guilty back then or, you know, not proven their case, but at least all the evidence was still here then. Now everything's disappeared. They can't find any of the evidence. Five of the witnesses are deceased and it's going to make it difficult, you know, for a case to be tried downtown. Prosecutors scoff at Hall's allegation. They argue the case was fully investigated back then and that the state can't be blamed that the two people who knew what happened, Melvin and his mother, kept it secret until now. In the end, Judge Menico sides with the state and certifies Melvin to stand trial as an adult in the case, one hurdle down. So the case is assigned to Matt Smid and Brooke Panathos, who quickly start preparing their case to be taken before a grand jury. A grand jury, in case you don't know, is a panel of 12 citizens who hear evidence in a felony case and decide if probable cause exists for the alleged charges. If they determine yes, they issue an indictment or true bill and the case can proceed to trial. If they determine no, they issue a no bill on the case and charges are dismissed. In Melvin's case, they say yes and on January 19, 2017, he is indicted on a charge of murder. Now, while all these legal steps are taking place, Melvin's been in and out of jail. He gets out on bond, then gets jailed again after his girlfriend accuses him of threatening her and another man with a knife. He gets out again after a grand jury later no-bills that case. Melvin later testifies it's because he did nothing wrong, but prosecutors contend it's because his girlfriend stopped cooperating. He's jailed again for violating bond conditions, twice failing to submit to a drug test, and another time testing positive for cocaine. And after a few months, he gets released on bond again. Eventually, his trial is set for July. But a month before it starts, prosecutors make Melvin an extremely generous offer. Plead guilty to murder in exchange for a 10-year prison sentence. There were a lot of legal issues in the case, and we felt that to solidify a conviction with a double-digit pen-time offer in light of his age and in light of the legal issues, we felt that that would have been a good deal to get it resolved and for him to waive all rights to appeal. The Rogers family had been told about the plea offer before it was extended. Was a 10-year prison sentence justice enough in their eyes? Jeff Rogers says no, but the family was desperate for closure. What the DA came up with is something that they thought they could possibly get across the finish line. What the family had desired was something anywhere between 30 and 50 years. So uh, we knew the, the DA had to do what they did and, and we're glad that they came to us and asked us for our, our input and we told them what we told them and they did what they thought they could uh, get across. Ultimately, you know, uh, Mr. Knox turned down everything. Uh, uh, in lieu of his desire for time served and probation. We weren't going to endorse that. Now that Melvin would turn down the 10-year offer is a big gamble. Under 1973 laws, if the case went to trial and Melvin was convicted, sure, he could get probation, but he also faced from two all the way up to 99 years or life in prison. Let's put that into perspective. Under the parole laws back in 1973, 
which remember are the laws that will apply to Melvin. He'd only have to serve a third of his sentence before becoming eligible for parole. Plus, he'd get credit for any earned good time. So a 10-year prison sentence could actually have meant only spending a few years behind bars. That he turned that down surprises me. But just two weeks before the trials start, Melvin makes an even more surprising move. Hall, his defense attorney, calls prosecutors and says Melvin now wants to plead guilty in the case, but not for the offer 10 years plea bargain. Instead, he'll throw himself on the mercy of the court and let Judge Wayne Salvant decide his fate. And he had called us, so we just said, look, if we're going to do it, we need to do it immediately. Why the rush? Wanted to lock it in. Now, Jeff wasn't sure what to think when he got the call from prosecutors about Melvin's plan. He, for one, doesn't believe Melvin deserves any mercy. Uh, for the last 43 years, he's lived his life, though it hadn't been a great one from what I understand. Uh, but he's been free. He's been alive. You know, he's been with his family. Uh, my brother didn't get that. On June 28th, Melvin appears before Judge Salvant to enter his guilty plea. Sentencing will be held at a later date. All right, I'm going to call cause number 1468054. State of Texas versus Melvin Lynn Knox. State's ready? Yes, sir. And the defense. We're ready, Your Honor. All right, Mr. Knox, you're charged with murder. Right. Now, it states in the indictment that Melvin Lynn Knox, here after called offended in the county of Tarrant, state of Forsyth, on about the seventh day of August, 1973, in the county of Tarrant, state of Texas, you did then and then lawfully, voluntarily, and with malice of forethought killed Donald Rogers by shooting him with a firearm or by stabbing and cutting him with a knife against the peace and dignity of the state. You understand what you're charged with? Yes, I understand. To this you may plead guilty or not guilty? I plead guilty, sir. And you plead guilty because you are guilty? Yes, Jeff Rogers, Donald's older brother, is the only family member on hand that day to hear Melvin's long-awaited words. Though he'd seen Melvin before at the certification hearing, he wanted to be there to hear Melvin finally take responsibility for Donald's murder. Seeing him say, I did it, I'm guilty, that was stark. That, uh, that was good to hear. So it is now July 9th, and I've just arrived to meet with the Rogers family as they gather together at Anissa's home in Richland Hills on the eve of Melvin's sentencing hearing. Good to see you again. Yeah, thanks for coming out on Sunday. Of I mean, course. Had other plans. That's okay. At this gathering are four of Donald's siblings, the three oldest of whom will be present at tomorrow's hearing. Cynthia Brooks had flown in from her home in New York, and along with Jeff will testify at tomorrow's hearing. Carolyn Brooks lives locally, but had previously felt too emotional to attend the earlier certification and plea hearings. And I didn't want to see him. I've never seen him, you know, right. tomorrow. Be, I, I've never seen him. I've never right. seen any of them. You know, I don't hate him. It's, it's just hurtful that we have people that do that. I, I feel sorry for his family, you know, but, you know, I, I've been so tired of feeling sorry for us. The mood in the house this Sunday night is mostly jovial as the siblings swap childhood memories and gently rib Tracy Rogers, the youngest in the family, for managing to avoid the household chores and responsibilities that they had to endure. The three older siblings say they're not nervous about tomorrow. They're eager. We've been waiting for this day for a long time, and, and it's almost here. Uh, and, and, you know, it was abbreviated when, when Melvin finally stood up and took ownership, took responsibility for our brother's death. 
and just threw himself to the mercy of the court. Uh, I, I hope the uh, court ignores the, the mercy part because he doesn't deserve it, but that's just me. What the judge will sentence Melvin to is anybody's guess. Smith, the prosecutor, thinks it's unlikely the judge would grant Melvin probation, but knows in this business you never say never. After all, Melvin was a juvenile when he murdered Donald. More than 40 years have now passed, and Melvin has not had a conviction on his record for the past seven years. I told the family if he gets probation, and I wanted them to have their minds right for that. I really didn't think he would last long. He couldn't even abide by the court's terms on bond conditions. So I told them, look, even if that happens, worst case scenario, he's not going to make it long. While they've discussed hoping Melvin gets 30 to 50 years in prison, Cynthia says the family is resigned to accept whatever the judge hands down. Because it's better than what we did have. Uh, we didn't have a, a guilty verdict. We didn't have his confession. We didn't have his mother's confession. So that's all good now. So whatever we get now is just the cherry on the Sunday. It is the next morning on the sixth floor of the Tim Curry Criminal Justice Center. Melvin's wearing a black suit. It looks like he'd be more at home in the pew of a church on Sunday morning than where he is now at a defense table awaiting sentencing for a murder conviction. Here to support Melvin is his sister, Sheila. Remember, she's the one who at 12 had found Donald's body inside the Knox home that August 1973 evening. She's a large woman now who gets around with the use of a walker and is on oxygen. Neither Melvin's mother nor father are at the hearing. Donald's family members fill two and a half benches on the other side of the courtroom. Cynthia is the first to take the stand, describing her little brother and the lasting impact his murder had on her family. Jeff testifies about his recollections about the day of his brother's murder and the way it changed him and his family. Donald deserves justice. Our mother and father deserves justice. They're not here to receive it, to understand it. So for them, for Donald, for our, our family, we would like you to render the greatest piece of justice that the law will allow. So before Jeff leaves the stand, Judge Salvant stops him and poses a few questions of his own. What do you feel justice is in your mind? Justice would be at least 30 years. Had he come forward at that time and done the right thing, uh, based on my, my knowledge of the juvenile justice system, uh, this matter would probably be all resolved by now. No, it wasn't. And there was a series of lies for 44 years that covered this up. After the state rests, Melvin's defense attorney calls two women to testify on Melvin's behalf. One had previously been at Donald's certification hearing, and I'm thrilled she's been called to testify because I've been curious who she is. Turns out both women know Melvin through their mission work at The Tree. Now, The Tree is a place in Fort Worth, kind of like a makeshift outdoor church, where the homeless and those down on their luck gather on Wednesdays for a prayer and a free meal in that order. The woman I've seen before, Jamie Langston, is a former social worker who volunteers at the tree. It's there that she met Melvin more than seven years ago, and she testifies about how the two struck up a friendship. She tells the judge that Melvin's a great help to his aging parents and his sister, Sheila, all who struggle with health issues. And she describes Melvin as a compassionate man, said she's watched him grow spiritually through the years, but always suspected something weighed heavily on him. 
Since his arrest and learning his secret, Langston said she's found out that Melvin never got any counseling or therapy to help him deal with that 1973 night. Hall asked Langston if she thinks that's caused problems in Melvin's life. In a way, Melvin's put himself in, in prison for his, for his whole life since he's 15. The, the heavy burden and weight that, that he carries from, from that night. So the big question in any trial is whether the defendant will testify on their own behalf. Donald's family had been doubtful, but just in case, had previously given prosecutors a whole slew of questions they wanted asked if he did. We want to know what he did. We want to know why he did it. We wanted to know who knew and who helped him. It turns out Melvin was contemplating a bigger move. During a 15-minute break in the hearing, Ray Hall can be seen walking over to the prosecutor's table and whispering something in Smid's ear. Uh, he, had, he had approached me and said, hey, the 10 years that you'd offered, is it still on the table? So we just told Ray, hey, we, we're sorry, but we can't do that. It, it's too late, and it's going to be in the judge's hands, and that's going to be that. With the offer no longer good, Melvin does take the witness stand. Raise your right hand. <coughs> you solemnly swear the testimony you give today in this case on trial be the truth, the whole truth, and the truth stuff you got. Yes, sir. Have a seat. All right. Could you please step your name? Melvin and Knox. Okay, how old are you, Melvin? Now, Hall doesn't waste any time before jumping right into that late afternoon of August 7th, 1973. And on this day, when, what were you doing out at your house? Uh, I was playing basketball, sir. Okay, and who were you playing with? The dog. Uh -huh. Okay, and were you and Donald good friends? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, <coughs> and when did this start to go wrong? What happened? Well, it, it didn't go wrong until I was playing games in the house. I was playing, playing with uh, the gun and I didn't know it was loaded. Okay, and what happened? Melvin testifies he doesn't really understand what happened to his juvenile case. He just remembers being released and his defense attorney at the time telling him it was over and not to talk about it. But while he didn't face trial, Melvin says he did endure to the court of public opinion. He says he became fearful to go out. Did anybody threaten your family or anything? Well, I know they threatened me when I go to football games or basketball games, I had to stop going. Did you finish school? No, sir. How come you didn't finish school? Because I got tired of people messing with me. Melvin tells the judge about the odd jobs he worked after dropping out of school, the local Coca-Cola bottling plant, helping his mom in the family business, working as a janitor. But Melvin says what he did to his friend haunted him and that he turned to alcohol and drugs. I went to drinking alcohol and using drugs to forget things. 
Okay, what, what do you mean to forget things? That what I had done that was always worrying me to get, uh, you know, it was on my mind all the time. I thought the drugs would stop it, but I don't think it did. So now the questions began to meander into Melvin's criminal past, and you start to hear Melvin do what a lot of defendants do when they take the stand in their own defense, downplay what they've done. Yes, he dealed drugs, but he says he actually used more than he sold as a way of coping. His previous aggravated assault conviction, he now says that he never actually assaulted anyone, that he was the one who was threatened with a knife by a couple who stole his necklace. He says he only pled guilty in that case because authorities kept messing with him about his past. Hall seems to realize how this reversal might play off to the judge and quickly brings it back to Donald's shooting. Earlier, you said that you didn't know the gun was loaded, correct? Yeah, I didn't. Okay, but you've pled guilty to this case of murder, correct? Yes, sir. I'm okay, and you're saying you committed murder, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, you're not trying to make an excuse or no. anything for what happened, is that correct? No, sir. Okay. Melvin tells the judge his parents and sister Sheila depend on him. It's a common defense tactic meant to show what an impact his incarceration would have on others. He talks about getting his father and sister their medications, helping his sister out of bed, doing chores for his mother who has a bad back. Melvin says he sometimes can't sleep thinking about what he did to Donald and says confessing to the cold case detective lifted some of that burden off his shoulders. He insists he's a changed man and that he hopes the judge will grant him probation so that he can continue to care for his family. It's really something that you don't want on your shoulder. And I, I realized that I'm, I did the wrong thing. Okay. I wish I could turn it back, but it's no way I can. I just asked for forgiveness, and I asked his family to forgive me, but I know it's hard to do. Okay. He, he was my best friend. And you know, I played a, played a little too rough that game that day. Like I said, I didn't know it was loaded. It, it's always a not loaded. Smith's cross-examination focuses on Melvin's life of crime, his past arrest, his use of cocaine while out on bond in the case, his stints in prison. He drills Melvin with the questions that he's promised the family he would ask. Why'd you point the gun at Donald's face? Why'd you pull the trigger? What was Donald doing? Melvin admits Donald did nothing to prompt the shooting. I was a dumb kid playing the wrong way with people, Melvin says. Melvin is the last person to testify. In closing arguments, Hall tells the judge he believes the system failed both the victim and Melvin back in 1973. He asked the judge to grant Melvin probation so he can continue to help his family and others. In his own closing argument, Smith doesn't ask for a specific sentence, only that the judge be stern. So Judge Salvant's been on the bench since 1995. He's known for his trademark bow tie and has a certain style when delivering sentences. He doesn't just blurt out a sentence, bang his gavel, and trial over. No, he routinely delivers some words of explanation and wisdom, a little lecture, if you will, before diving into a defendant's punishment. And this time would be no different. Salvant tells Melvin he's bothered by many things in the case that Melvin shot Donald unprovoked, that he stabbed him seven times and then went to such great efforts to stage the crime scene, that he then went on to continue a life of crime. I don't think you or your lawyer expects me to give you probation for this. Do you? Well, I'm hoping you would, sir. You think you deserve probation for what all you've done? 
not there to say. That's right. I mean, let's let's be truthful with ourselves, okay? You committed a heinous crime. You tried to cover it up. And then, in the past 40 years, you basically have been a criminal. I mean, let's just face it. You have. So, probation is not even an issue. Not for this court. Now, what did I do, though? Mr. Rogers is dead and has been dead now for almost 44 years. Uh, both Ms. Brooks, his sister, and Mr. Rogers, his brother, are here seeking justice. Now, nothing will bring their brother back. Their mother and father went to their graves, not even knowing uh, who actually killed their son. So no matter what I do today, it's gonna bring Mr. Rogers back. But that family deserves justice. They do. They've waited a long time for it. So, the court's gonna assess your punishment at 40 years in the Institution Division of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. There ain't a legal reason why I shouldn't sentence him. No, you're going to sentence you to 40 years. I'll direct the sheriff of this county, deliver you to the director for your serve out your time. I'm going to give you credit for time served. Carolyn Rogers, Donald's oldest sister, bows her head upon hearing the sentence and burst into tears. Her grown son, Eric, who was born seven months after Donald's murder, also becomes emotional. It was, it was more than I, I could handle, actually. I mean, because we didn't, we, we weren't thinking it was going to be that much, but we appreciate that it is. I burst out in tears, but it was happy tears. I know it's not going to bring Don back, we'll never see him, but at least, at least, it's closure. We, we got justice. Justice prevailed today for the Rogers thing. Cynthia Brooks and Jeff Rogers also expressed relief by the sentence, though neither believe Melvin told the whole truth up on that stand today. I requested an interview with Melvin while he was still in the Tarrant County Jail, but he turned me down. A few days after sentencing, I drove out to the Knox home where Donald had been murdered almost to the day 44 years prior. Hello. I'm doing fine. How are you, sir? I'm Deanna Boyd. I'm with the Forward Star Telegram. I am working on a Sal Curtis Knox sitting in his wheelchair outside, apparently not bothered by the hot Texas afternoon sun. Involving him, but I wanted to make sure I got his side of this too and the family side of it. Would you be willing to talk? No way. They do have long. I'll be sick. I don't mess with nothing no more. Okay. <laughs> okay. Is she home by chance? Yes, she in the middle of the roof. I knock on a sliding glass door that leads to a bedroom and find Sheila and Ruth sitting inside. The room is filled with Sheila's oxygen canisters. A third woman, I presume a home health aide, is also inside the room. The mother and daughter are polite and courteous as I explain why I'm there and ask if they'd be willing to be interviewed. Sheila Knox said the family is not interested at this time, though Ruth, her gray hair and braids on either side of her face making her appear younger than her age, seems to leave the possibility open by indicating I could come back another time. In the end, they take my card and say they'll consider it, but I never hear from them. 
A few days later, I accompanied Jeff and Carolyn Rogers to the Cedar Hill Memorial Park, the cemetery where Donald and their parents are buried. It's a bit of a search, but they finally find Donald's grave under the shade of a large oak tree. Jeff sets about cleaning the marble and brass marker with some tools he's brought along. I haven't been out here in years, so, but I needed to come out. It's a little bit closure, but still a little empty space. It'll get better day to day. Yes, Melvin Knox is locked up. Jeff says when Melvin becomes eligible for parole, either he or one of the other siblings will be there to look the parole board in the eye and share their belief that Melvin is where he needs to remain. It's unfortunate that his family is ill. It's unfortunate that it took so long to, to achieve justice, but uh, this was his doing, not ours. So as far as I'm concerned, he can stay there for the entire 40 years. The Rogers feel fortunate to now have a resolution in their brother's case. They know that cold cases being solved is a rarity, and they're right. McCormick has told me that over the 100 cold cases he reviewed in his two years in the cold case unit, he'd only be able to clear two cases through arrest, one of those being Donald's murder. The family praises Detective McCormick for his work in the case. It is challenging, they know, and the reason most cold case detectives don't last but a year or two in the unit. McCormick, in fact, has since retired from the police department and now works for TCU police. They say they also recognize the role that they, as family members, had to play. So I guess probably all of this is because of Carolyn. Had she not keep mm -hmm. bugging me, she... It, it was it was all of us, but we had some guardian yeah. angels up there. Uh, but Carolyn, sure. had you not, had you not, had you not been persevering, was, particularly with me... Mm -hmm. That's Carolyn, who overcome by emotion has left the room in tears. It's true. It's, you know, if, if there was one message in this, if you have a firm belief that justice was not done or served, um, it is your responsibility, someone's responsibility, to make people or assist them in doing their jobs. And I think that's what was done here. And had not the district attorney and these investigators that my sister and brother have been working with for the past year, had they not been more willing to do what they did ultimately, this would still be considered a cold case file. And that is unfortunate. Um, because I'm sure there are many, many others out there. You know, whether you're black, whether you're white, you know, the message is just keep fighting, look for justice, look for the truth. Thanks for listening to the first two episodes of Out of the Cold. Check back next month for another episode on a different cold case. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Lee Williams, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.